Will you turn with me to the very opening of the Bible, to chapter 2. We are going to, this morning, look at verses 4 through 17. If you don't have your Bibles with you, you can turn to the back of your order of worship. Just to remind you of what we've seen so far. Everything has been made. God has created the world in six days. And then on the seventh day, it says that He rested. So we've covered uh, the, the Sabbath last Sunday. This, this morning, you might find it odd in chapter 2 that all of a sudden we go back into the creation story. What God's having us do is look at it from a different angle. And He's honing in, focusing in on something special. His relationship with man, with Adam, and eventually, as we'll see next week, the creation of His helpmate, His wife. Eve. And so we'll turn to God's word. We'll consider this as we see really uh, pictured before us a beautiful fellowship of man with God, God with his people. So let me pray before we read God's word. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have spoken with power. Lord God, that you spoke And your voice, by your will, you created things that were not, that you made, Father. We pray that that same voice, that same power, be at work in our midst this morning. That your voice would be present as we read your word, as it goes before us, Father. That it would give us life. That it would call us to our hope, which is Christ Jesus, and we pray this morning that it is Christ that would be magnified. O Spirit of God, be at work, breathe into us this life this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll begin with verse 4 and read down to 17. Listen to God's Word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havalah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and Ankh stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows around east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil 
you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. Amen? This morning, as we consider this beautiful fellowship that we see with God in the garden, uh, we will consider three points. One, the abundance of life with God. Two, the gift of life with God. And three, the requirement for continued life with God. First, the abundance of life with God. I want you just for a moment uh, to, to try to imagine this passage, to take in this passage from the eyes of those who first heard it. Israel is in the middle of the wilderness when Moses wrote the, the first books of the Old Testament. And, and they're wandering in a land that has very little to offer as far as beauty is concerned. It is as if everything that is comfortable has been stripped away. There aren't these four beautiful rivers. There isn't the, the lush trees bearing fruit that are pleasing to the eye that they can go and pluck and eat anytime they want. There isn't ground covered in precious stones. There isn't a garden of God's bounty set before them. It's only as they read it or heard it an image to be imagined. What they do have, though, is God and His continual presence with them in the tabernacle in the center of their camp. Right there at the center, God is there and the smoke is always going up, a pleasing sacrifice to Him as their sacrifice for their sins. And they do have God's provision and protection. And they have His Word. And all that they see, that despite what plays out in the next chapters of Genesis as you know them to be, the fall, God has not withdrawn from them. God is in their presence and He is with them. And He gives them comfort. And so He gives through Moses, through Moses writing this, a picture of the beginning, a picture of, of beauty and of abundance, something that is to be desired and admired, something beautiful. And they know that what God is holding out to them in, in a land that He's taking them towards, and what they, they hear about in the, in the creation of the world is something that He is going to be restoring for His people. They were never meant to be a nomadic people, wandering, but a people that are positioned in the presence of God, surrounded by His beauty. Brothers and sisters, that is what we are meant for, to be in the very presence of God with His abundance, surrounded by this kind of beauty. Moses tells the people of Israel that they are promised a land that will be flowing with a bounty of all kinds of things. A land, literally, he says, that will be flowing with milk and honey and vineyards they didn't plant. And of course, this land that they were to receive was only a precursor of the land that will be much like Eden before the fall. And this is beautiful abundance. Brothers and sisters, let us read Genesis 2 then and appreciate 
what was and what will be ours one day completely and perfectly. You get a taste of heaven on earth here. It is beautiful. We are meant to read this and to to take in all its beauty unstained and undefiled. And in it, you will find the very intimacy of God. Verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, listen to this, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain. This is the first time in the scriptures we hear that particular name of God for the Lord God. In fact, it really sticks out in the back of your order of worship. You see the all caps of Lord indicating His name, Yahweh. We've had up until this point uh, telling us about Elohim. And now we get another name. He's called the Lord God, or more literal, Yahweh Elohim. Verse 4 opens with, with this, this new narrative. Not a, a new creation, but a diamond, so to speak, that's flipped over for you to look at this creation narrative from a different angle and see a different beauty. The opening chapter of Genesis gave us the work of God from heaven, so to speak, as he, he looks down and He creates. And what we see now in chapter 2 is He's not only a God that's way up there creating things down here, but He's also a God who is imminent. A God who is among His people. That's what Yahweh means here. It's the personal, intimate name that Israel knows their God by. A closeness. Yahweh, the covenant God, who is purposefully dwelling among His people. Not just way up there, but also imminent among His creation. And even more, He treats man different than all other things He created. Here we see uh, this image of uh, elsewhere in Scripture describes like a potter at work at his wheel, bending over the dirt, picking it up and fashioning it into something special. We'd see a, a, a a different aspect of His creative mind and will. He fashions something from the dirt, verse 7. Man after his own image, and then he, he breathes life into it from his own nostrils. We're going to unpack that more in the second point. But what I want you to see is that God is walking among this earth, pouring out the abundance of life. You see it here, creating man uh, in his image, fashioning him. Walking among it, and then you see it in the streams that are flowing. Everything screams abundance of life from the ground that literally, it says, springs up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. There is always plenty with Him and abundance. Everything good for life. Abundance of food. Abundance of breath and water for everyone. There's a river, it says, in the midst of Eden that grows into multiple rivers and spreads out over the whole of land. This isn't even how rivers work today, is it? Rivers normally are small and grow into one, but here it describes one river that breaks up into other rivers, spreading out, 
growing and flowing and spreading over the whole land. It's, it's to show you that life is flowing from one central place. The blessing multiplies and it grows and expands and covers the whole of the land. Abundance, it screams. The point is God is at the center of abundant life. And it is multiplied and spreading outwards. This is the original design. In the center is God. And so is His most special tree. The tree of life, verse 9. A tree which is a sacrament of life. A a sign of everlasting life held out to, to Adam to partake of. It was meant... Uh, it, it was this that man was created for this, this, this everlasting life, abundant life with God at the center and his blessings magnified forever and ever and ever and to go on without ceasing. Now we can look back and desire it. We can long for it. We can crave it. Like Israel in the wilderness. You might think it's only a thing of the past, right? This abundant life, this thing that's so beautiful in chapter 2, I'm just reading about how it used to be. But listen, it isn't. It's breaking into the world even now. In the age of Christ Jesus and His church, And one day, again, it will be at the focal point of everlasting presence of God. A hope that never ceases that He will be with His people in a garden once again. Revelation tells us that it is coming. It's not just look back and see it, but you may experience it now and you may look forward to seeing it once again. Revelation 7 says, Therefore, they are before the throne of God. This is what is to come. And serve Him night and day in His temple. And He will shelter them in His presence. And then it tells us of the abundance of life. They shall hunger no more. Neither thirst any more. And the sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. Can't you taste it? Oh, to be in the shade of the trees of the garden that we read about in Genesis 2. Brothers and sisters, you will be. To have water flowing. And the greatest of all, to have God walking among His people. We taste this old Eden when we come to Christ now and taste the abundance of life. Jesus said, whoever drinks... The water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And in him, a spring of living water will well up to eternal life. For when Jesus said, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? With me is abundant life. We taste this abundance now as we gather for worship on Sunday mornings, as we gather together to eat and to drink in the presence of the living God, a foretaste of the garden that is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 22, where the river of life 
flows out of the center of the throne of God and the Lamb. With the tree, listen to this abundance, yielding its fruit for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed for the throne of God will be in its midst. We look on this beautiful moment longing for it, but realizing at the same time God is restoring all of this beauty, all of this goodness, even now for His people. Amen? Amen. Let that refresh your soul. In fact, what we see is that every spiritual and physical blessing in earthly places is present in Genesis 2. And as we saw in Ephesians 1, He's now pouring out on us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You taste the tangible realities of the garden when you worship Him, when you rest in Him, and hear His Word and taste the fruit of the vine at the table. He has made man for this kind of garden. And we are a part of the new creation in which He is making all things new as they should be. Do you want abundant life? Do you want this abundant life that is present in Genesis 2? It can only be found in Jesus Christ. So we have seen the abundance of life with God. Now let us turn to see the gift of life with God. It must first be noted that life is only derived from God. You can't read the opening of Genesis and believe anything else. All aspects of life are are rooted in God's power and in His gifts. Just as creation itself was founded in the will and the power of God, so is our very life. So that man doesn't think too highly of himself being made, as it tells us, in the image of God. God goes on to tell us, verse 7, that He made us from the dust of the ground. We are formed out of the, the very thing that had the lowest dignity in all creation, the dirt of the ground. God makes the the plants rise up out of this dirt, but what about man? How will man grow out of such things? Well, it would be that God would bend down and fashion him from the dust, and from the dust he would make the crown of his creation. You see, it's more personal for God here than it is uh, seemingly of any other part of, of the creation narrative. He is creating something that He is going to have a personal relationship with. Something that He would talk to and make promises to. And something that would sing back to Him in worship and speak to Him in prayer and trust in Him for every need of life. Something that uh, needed the very breath of God to have life. And so verse 7, he, we see something different than everything else. It says that God, uh, think of the intimacy of it, touching the nostrils and, and breathing life. That man here becomes a a living creature. Now, when we read that, we might skip over it naturally. It's just like, okay, I mean, just like everything else becomes a living creature because God made it. But the Hebrew here is helpful. It's a different kind of living altogether. The Hebrew word is nefesh. 
Literally, it means a, a, a passionate vitality. Even more literal, it means that he breathed a soul into this creation that he shaped and that he formed. This is what it is to be made in the image of God, to have a passionate appetite for God. Living creatures made to be single-mindedly seeking after God. This is what it looked like in Genesis 2. This was the purpose of your being, of why we were made. The breath of life is the pouring into man life found in the soul. The body and the soul together in unity to worship and to obey God. The Spirit of God, or the breath, is the animation of the body and the soul unto life. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. In fact, we read through Ezekiel. Uh, we did a podcast on Ezekiel. You see the, the valley of the dry bones. And, and he takes Ezekiel out there and he says, speak to them that they might live. And Ezekiel's like, how? What, what, what would happen that could make these bones described as very dry bones to give you this, this, this view that they're basically already dirt. They're dusty. They've been laying there. How do they have life? It says that the Spirit is breathed into them. That God raises them up and gives them flesh. He animates them. Also, we see it elsewhere as it relates to the Holy Spirit. As we get into the New Testament, we have an understanding that man is dead in his sin spiritually. Jesus talks about in John 20, he says this, after he had been raised from the dead, he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. Seems strange. He breathed on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Or 1 Corinthians 15, which is the resurrection applied to us, recalls what happens in Genesis 2 when it says, the first Adam became, here it is again, a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. We see the gift of life in the garden with the breath of God as the beginning of the life of man. It is only the breath of God, His Spirit, that animates our soul and makes us living creatures to worship and to enjoy Him. You see, this fellowship that God has, especially with Adam when He made him, is the fellowship that He desires for His people. It has always been the plan. We see it in verse 9. In the garden there was a tree of life. Just as the breath of life was a gift held out to Adam, so is this tree of life. John Calvin says this about it. He intended that man, as often as he reached out and tasted of the fruit of the tree, that he should remember where he received his life in order that he might acknowledge that he lives not by his own power, but by the kindness of God alone. It was a sacrament. And every time they reached out, every time Adam ate of it, experientially and confidently tasted the very promises of God. Proverbs 3 tells us, Wisdom is the tree of life. To those who lay hold of her, those who hold fast to her, are called blessed. Just as this tree of life is the source of everlasting life, Christ is pictured here. 
He is the tree of life that we take hold of and that, that we feed from. He is the tree that is imagined in the garden. One theologian says it this way, Christ is the true tree of life because as mediator, He is the prince of life, giving life to the world and eternal life in heaven by glory. For He is the resurrection and the life who will most certainly bestow upon us His own eternal life. Truly, He is the only tree because no one except Christ is the author of eternal life, nor is there salvation in any other. Life is a gift from God. He is the source of it, and His Son is the security of it. If you want beautiful fellowship with God, like what is described in the garden, then we must receive the Spirit of God and take hold of Christ as the tree of everlasting life. How? How do we experience the kind of life that, that Adam had in the garden? By faith. Brothers and sisters, by faith, crying out, Spirit of God, give me life. God, breathe in me life. And He gives it to all those who ask in faith. All those who come to Christ. By faith you lay claim to Him. Hanging on every word of God, He is the gift of life from God. So we have seen the abundance, the beautiful abundance of life with God in the garden. And we have seen that life, uh, the very breath of life and the everlasting life is a gift from God so that we come to our last point. Could it be lost? Could this life be lost? We see this last point, the requirement for continued life with God. I remember when I was younger, my father once told me an illustration. He said, son, I was walking along the sidewalk, and as I was walking, I, I looked down and I noticed all of these metal parts. And all of a sudden, as I stood there watching, the pieces, the metal pieces, started moving. And then they came together. I saw a cog move and, and some pins move, and there was some glass over here. And, and the metal came together, and it, it locked in. And then it stopped moving, and I, son, I bent over, and I picked it up, and it was a watch. And as I looked at the watch, I noticed that it kept perfect time. Do you believe that, son? No, of course not. How could it be possible that something as intricate as a watch comes together and keeps perfect time. That the cogs all fit and it, it holds together. How could that be possible? We know that instinctively, right? How complicated a watch is. It demands uh, our minds to understand it takes a designer, a creator, that it was made by someone shaping it and fashioning it. It's the same way with the creation of man. Created for a purpose. Created for a relationship. I mean, you can't look at the intricacy of a big toe and deny that a creator put it together. Now think of the complicated rest of the body and what God has done. He has made us for a purpose. 
can't deny that there was a creator. The only thing in our story that wasn't made is God. God is the uncaused cause. That is why we have the name Yahweh, Elohim. Yahweh means also, I am who I am. I am the self-existent God. In fact, uh, Moses asked, what should I tell the people when I go back? Tell them that I am who I am has come. My name, the self-sufficient God, the God who wasn't made, has come to rescue His people. We get it first here, Yahweh Elohim, to impress upon you, I am not created, you are. And the effect of the creation isn't just that there is a design, but there is also a relationship. You see, God didn't need us. He didn't need to make us. He graciously did so. He graciously gives us promises, but He didn't need us. God had perfect relationship in the Godhead in the Trinity. Perfect relationship between God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And yet man was made in his image and the reflection of the original for relationship. And the effect of making man was relationship with him. God made man for relationship with God and it should work perfectly. That's the design. Verse 15. He also made man to work. To keep the garden. As we saw a couple weeks ago. To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And to have dominion. He made him for a purpose. To reflect that God works and keeps his creation. And this is the inescapable reality of mankind. And we can't escape what we were made for, for relationship and to reflect His righteous nature. And then we get to verse 16 and 17. And God tells us that He desires to be in relationship with man and for it to be perpetual. And so He tells Adam, if you obey Me perfectly, the relationship remains intact is a part of the design. And that is why if Adam disobeys God, there is the warning that disobedience severs, it tears the very heart of this design and severs the relationship and death enters in. All of this is couched in what we call covenant. What we call the covenant of works. In it, God the Creator, God the, the higher, condescends to man, the lower being, and he, he makes promises with him. And these promises are contingent upon obligations. God has promised life as the reward of obedience and death for disobedience. This is the term of the contract that God doesn't also only have with Adam. He has with Adam and all those who come from Adam. This is for us as well. Adam is functioning as this head of all mankind in this contract. So verse 16 and 17 has everything to do with us. We're held under the same covenant today. It doesn't involve a tree of knowledge of good and evil, but at the center of the covenant, it has perfect obedience. We will not understand the gospel, brothers and sisters, unless we first understand verse 16 and 17. 
for what plays out in the rest of the Bible hinges on these two verses. One theologian describes the scene this way. The tree is good, but it belongs exclusively to God. It's God's tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sin consists of this illicit reach of unbelief. An assertion of our own human autonomy to know morality apart from God. The creature must live by faith in God's Word, not by self-professed sufficiency without God. The tree was God's alone, and if Adam would trust and obey God, he would only know good and would merit everlasting life. And you read Genesis 2, and you go, this is still in effect? Perfect obedience? Oh, but I know my problem then. I read something like this, where everything is beautiful and abundant and perfect fellowship and full of life and see that we have a problem. The covenant of works still hangs over our heads and God hasn't changed. We know after this chapter, man changes forever. Obedience. Perfect obedience. Well, that's my biggest issue. I said you can't understand the gospel if you don't first get a hold of this first covenant. What I mean is you can't understand the necessity and the need of Christ Jesus and what He had to do. And often we think merely that Christ died for sinners so that we would be saved from the curse of death. But it's more than this. We are saved by the life and the death of Christ. You see, in Christ's life, He has fulfilled the obligation of the covenant of works on our behalf. In His perfection, in His perfect and sinless obedience, So that when we read chapter 2, we don't go, man, I'll never experience that kind of fellowship or abundance of life. I'm I'm like Adam before the breath of life entered into him. So that when death entered the world through one man's action, As we see in the fall after this, Christ, the second Adam, obeyed perfectly. And that death that that, that God tells Adam will be yours if you disobey me, that death has fallen on someone else. Here is the beautiful fellowship of the garden returned to us. Romans 5 For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance. There's some abundance. Abundance of what? Abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see, 
we read how it was in Genesis 2. And we read of the requirement for continued life with God and we'll only find that life restored and renewed in Christ Jesus alone. If you want this abundant life, then cry out to God who gives the gift of life by breathing His Spirit into us that we might taste once again this beautiful fellowship and everlasting life that we were designed for. In a moment, uh, we'll, we'll pray. We will um, confess some things together, affirm our faith together. But in a moment, you get to reach out. And you get to take hold of the same kind of goodness and fellowship. Much like Adam did from the fruit of the other trees of the garden, you may eat from the tree of life, which is Christ Jesus. We do that when we come to the table. Something to take hold of that confers to us the blessing of God's promises to His people. Amen? Let's pray.